Hello, all right, all right, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine, SDRA Talk English on Twitter. Send me a tweet. Of late, I've just been whinging about how tired I am. Feel free to drop in with your uh, energising remedies. I don't know. StraightTalkingEnglish.com Patreon slash StraightTalkingEnglish For a quid a month, you can support what I do. There are all kinds of different tiers, depending on your generosity. And for my top tier subscribers, you can commission me to write about a thing of your choice a book hopefully a piece of literature like i'm not going to talk about how to marie condo your house or something but the options there youtube search up straight talking english i've got a couple of videos up so far there's been a snag on the ozymandias one in the sense that i've completely messed up my audio and my backup audio so i might have to uh, reshoot some of that bad boy But I've decided I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, leave Ozymandias where he is, being two legs in a desert. And I'm going to do another video on the poem I'm going to do today. If you're on Amazon and you are in the market for some very, very fine context-based literature, we have the books available on Christmas Carol, Jekyll and Hyde of Mice and Men and Sign of Four and there's going to be some weird parallels coming up between Arthur Conan Doyle's life and Tom Hardy's life. Oh, I'm going to keep making this mistake by the way guys because what I'm leading up to is Neutral Tones by Thomas Hardy the writer, not Tom Hardy the actor. He has nothing to do with this. And last but not least i completely forgot to thank my voice actors for the last two i am a shocking shocking person so thank you very very much to laura for giving up her time to record ozymandias thank you very very much to holly for doing love's philosophy and massive thanks to my voice actor today who is an online friend of mine i don't actually know his real name but his online pseudonym is koala so thank you very much koala when you hear his dulcet tones reading neutral tones all right that's all my business that's my metaphorical like doing my register at the start of the class let's talk a little bit about neutral tones by thomas hardy so you might have heard of hardy already but not as a poet so most of what he's famous for is his novels For example, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, Jude the Obscure, Far From the Madden Crowd. And these were wildly successful. Absolutely very, very, very successful. And this is mostly what we know him for today. But he did tinker around with poetry on and off for his whole life. And originally that's what he wanted to do instead of writing novels. And, like, it's not really what he got any money for. (laughs) This poem was written when he was a young man and it was released as part of like a um, retrospective collection when he was a much older man. So it kind of was a, you know, ah, but I'm your favourite novelist, wouldn't you like to buy some of my poems too, because I also do that. So yeah, it's kind of a weird choice, kind of a weird old choice for the anthology, considering as he's not primarily a poet, which sets him aside from the others. He's also famous for being incredibly miserable there's a theme throughout his work of just 
unending misery. Just nothing goes right for anyone. And um, I got very confused by this because I was quite a precocious teenager. And I wanted to try and read some quote-unquote challenging literature, mostly because at the time I was applying for Oxford and I wanted to show off. So I read Tess the D'Urbervilles, aged uh, 17. So story starts off, this girl's family realise she's got the same surname as a rich family and they're distant relations. So they say, oh, why don't you go down there and make nice with them, see if they'll give us a bit of cash. I was very, very sheltered 17 year old and I was like, okay, cool. The uh, younger son of the rich family is evidently a badden and he invites her out to the woods and the chapter ends with she's fallen off a horse and is lying on the floor and he she's looking up at him and he's looking down at her and I'm like, okay. And the next chapter she's got a baby. And like, okay, I was sheltered, but like, I knew, I knew there was something in the middle of that. So I was like, all right, I'll bear with it, I'll bear with it. I'm already not enjoying this, but I'm going to go with it. And then she dies and the baby dies and everyone dies and her boyfriend dumps her and it's just unending misery. So what you'd expect, even sheltered little year 12 me, would be like, you know, this is going to be miserable. The other thing he's really famous for is writing about the countryside. All of his books are set in Wessex, in rural places, with, like, farmers and traditions and stuff. Stuff that Hardy remembered from his childhood. But this poem is not one of them. This poem is a London poem, because we know exactly where and when it was written. Bear with me on this one. So, unlike a lot of his generically countryside nonsense, this one is a central London poem, specifically Kensington. Ah, I'll come to that in a sec. So, Thomas Hardy is born, as most people are. His dad is a builder. His mum is a stay-at-home mum. He has a number of siblings, but he is the smart one. They live in a village in the middle of Nowheresville, Wessex. And they're not doing too bad for being ordinary people. Not middle class, not gentry. They're doing alright, actually. They've got a nice house. They're very religious. Very religious. And even though his mum is married to his dad, she endlessly says, do not get married. Getting married is like the worst thing you can do. Never, ever, ever get married. Relationships are terrible. Which, you've got to be asking some questions. His mum is relatively cosmopolitan for the area. She's actually been to London. And from a young age, Hardy, his intelligence shows himself. He's the one that gets sent away to school. And he's the one that shows himself to be very talented. Arguably his sisters were as well, but um, because it's the 19th century and people seem to be under the impression that girls are rubbish. They became teachers and that was kind of the best job available to a regular person, which some might argue is the same now. Um, They realised that technically Hardy was supposed to take after his dad and go into the building trade. We're not 
I mean, now building a whole different ball game. You've got people who are like qualified in construction. You've got all different levels of interaction with building. And by no means is it just like cut the bricks. But I get the impression that it kind of was in Hardy's dad's firm. Um, so they decided kind of the similar, kind of the same, right? We're going to get him apprenticed to an architect. So he's going to get that trade and then he's going to come back and work for dad's building firm. All right, cool, 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 cool. He goes off to the nearest, well, I was going to say nearest big town, nearest not small town. And he starts apprenticing to an architect. He's doing pretty well. He is quite a talented architect, to be honest. Uh, he actually wins prizes for his work, which you would not blooming guess by looking at the house he later built for himself. Google it, like Max Gate is what it's called, and it is not an attractive dwelling. But he decides he's had enough of his provincial life. He's mostly doing architecture for renovating churches and he's he's loving it it appeals to his religious sensibilities but the provincial life is not going to be enough for tommy h he decides to move to london as a relatively young man age 23 all right i mean again this is seeming like a relatively normal story i mean i'm born in london I lived all around the world for about eight years and then I moved back here in um, 2013. So people move, people move after graduation, people move as a young person. So far his story is pretty typical. Then it all goes a little bit wrong for Tommy H because he has it kind of in his head how London is gonna be and how it actually is. So he gets a place, you, which actually is still standing, um, in what's now called Hardy Villas, but it's near Ladbrook Grove Tube. And if you were going to walk from Ladbrook Grove, Kensington to Central, or one, I'd be like, what's wrong with you? And two, you're going to want to take a bus or a district line. But Hardy didn't have those options. He took, he went by foot every day to work. Where he was living was kind of the outside country-ish boundaries of London at that point. And so I've pointed out with Browning and Blake, London is a lot smaller. So he trots along from West Ken down to the Strand. Down to, actually, is just up from where the Royal Academy is. So if Trafalgar Square's behind you, um, Charing Cross is going to be on your right, it's up there on the left by one of the big theatres. He gets this, actually, it's a pretty good job um, working for this established architect, essentially doing like post training training. So he's completed his basic apprenticeship and now he's doing like the extra. He's coming at architecture from being this like holy calling. Like, I renovate the church because this is my method of serving God. And um, when he gets to the office, they're like, nah, it's for money. This is a business. <laughs> and he's really, really shocked by the idea that an architect's business is a business. 
And like, I, when I read that, I was like, you can, it cannot have changed that much, like, really. So my father-in-law's an architect, and I asked my partner, like, well, like, I mean, if you went into an architect's office now, like, if you went into your dad's office, would you mistake it for, like, not being a business? And he was like, no, it's a business. <laughs> like, there has not been a point where it was not. Hardy just really, really got the wrong end of the stick. He thought he'd be meeting like-minded people because his demographic for working at his their last job was all sort of, like, people from the same area. And therefore, they're sort of into the same things. Goes up to London, and people just aren't really interested in what he's into. Mostly because what he's into is reading people's poetry, trying to organise, like, a lunchtime poetry and philosophy club. And the other people are like, no. (laughs) No, I want to go out and get a sandwich on my lunch break, not listen to you. (laughs) I'm like, oh my days can you just imagine that like if you've had an office job or if you are in a situation where you have a specified lunch break and some little short guy with a pronounced west country accent is like come talk about philosophy and listen to my poetry reading for an hour he was well well into this self-improvement craze right because every victorian young man was so he'd book himself into like portrait gallery he'd go to all these readings go to all these plays and partly the reason he was well into self-improvement is because hardy came into contact with something called the british class system for the first time so again where he came from everyone was sort of the same you know like the lord would be in the big house but everyone else would sort of be doing their own thing nah he shows up with no references um no like solid family background no like uni contacts nothing like that and he can't make this entrance into society in the way that he wants he being hardy becomes incredibly miserable about this my counter example is Charles Dickens. Like, Charles Dickens came from nothing, but through sheer graft and being in the right place at the right time, he managed to. Whereas Hardy didn't take that as a model. Hardy was like, no, my life is over. No one will ever love me. I am ruined. But he actually kept this notebook of phrases I have read that I want to use in my writing. And like, he copy out little bits from Shakespeare and little bits from like famous writers like Thackeray and work out where he might be able to use them because he was really desperate to have this middle class identity. <laughs> and honestly, God, I was reading this and because um, I've mostly based this episode on Claire Tomlin's biography which is absolutely fantastic he reminds me of this guy I went to sixth form with about the same time I was reading Tess of the D'Urbervilles and this particular gentleman went up to my friend well he was always writing in a notebook and my friend went up to him and said oh what, what are you writing down he's like this is my book of eminence and she was like you are he's like When I receive a message from a higher power, I write it in my book. And my friend is like, okay, you've got to tell me, you've got to tell me. 
and one of them was like judge a woman by her shoes because if they are worn she has gone on a long journey and i'm like i, I can't i can't quite process this and I always now have this image of Hardy as being that guy from my sixth form, who I will not name, but that's just the image I've got. So not only is he disillusioned with architecture, he's disillusioned with writing and ever being able to be middle class. To throw something else into the mix, he starts reading Oh no, only danger can come from reading. Except if you're Shelley, and, or Shelley, except if you're Hardy, and then it all just kind of goes wrong. He starts reading up on the philosophy of Stoicism. So Stoicism is a philosophical school of thought that was arguably led by the emperor of the Roman Empire, Marcus Aurelius. Essentially, you think about yourself with restraint and humility. So I'm on dailystoic.com and this is where I'm just checking through as I'm talking to you. One of the practices the Daily Stoic recommends is think about the worst that can happen and it like imagine that was actually happening and then think about how you'd survive, right? So the idea is that if you're unhappy because of your fears of something if you imagine that's actually happening then you can like rise above it and become happier hardy took this completely the different way so i mean if the argument is like okay if one of my fears is my house burning down and i imagine it happens the next morning i wake up and my my house is fine and i feel really grateful if that was Hardy, he'd imagine his house of burning down and then he'd wake up and be like, well, my life is now meaningless. My possessions are gone. I shall sit here and like not actually process the reality. He took it very literally and he always did imagine he was living in the worst of circumstances. He is kind of the other side of stoicism is realise that you are like you are meaningless you are a tiny piece of dust in the universe so even though you think things that you're doing are incredibly important they're not so why don't you just relax live in the moment rather than being like overly worried about the future that's a good philosophy hardy went super nihilistic with it and was like no no nothing matters I am nothing and just became this complete misery guts apparently like some of the other apprentices at his work were like come on right we're gonna go out and he would literally never socialize and then they sort of gave up right so he's got the stoicism in the mix we also have the fabulously named Algernon Charles Swinburne and if you Google a picture of him, he has a truly, truly, I don't know if it's magnificent or awful, like Colonel Sanders beard. So this guy was a poet. He had a number of collections of poets. 
one of which came into the possession of Thomas Hardy. We think he bought it himself. <clears throat> there may be some reasons where, despite Swinburne's popularity, he's not on the syllabus. And I honestly, I can't stop giggling the whole way through this. So the reason, the reason he's not on the syllabus is because some of the topics of his poetry. According to Wikipedia, Swinburne wrote about many taboo topics, including lesbianism, cannibalism, sadomasochism, and atheism. He also wrote poems about Sappho, the like legendary lesbian icon, and Jesus. Hardy was reading this stuff and officially that was it the second he read this poetry he's like i am now an atheist everything means nothing <laughs> i mean as if you could add in more like edgelord into this guy like seriously so let's take a pause for a sec where he is where he's writing we have um stoicism swinburne class system, disillusioned with his job, lost his faith, and I have just scrolled down the wiki trying to find a picture to describe you, and what's just come up for Swinburne is he spread a rumour he had had sex with then eaten a monkey. Right, right, I'm moving away from Swinburne now. So let's take a listen to the poem. Many thanks again to my voice actor, and then we'll come back to this bad boy, and I want to tell you a little bit about the romance of this part. We stood by a pond that winter day, and the sun was white as though children of God, and a few leaves lay on the starving sod. They had fallen from an ash and were grey. Your eyes on me were as eyes that rove over tedious riddles of years ago, and some words played between us to and fro, on which lost and were by our love. The smile on your mouth was the deadest thing, alive enough to have strength to die, and a grin of bitterness swept thereby, like an ominous bird of wing. Since then, keen lessons that love deceives, and rings with wrong, have shaped to me your face on the god-cursed sun, and a tree, and a pond edged with greyish leaves. So sometimes it's difficult to tell if there was actually a romance or if it's fictional this one is on the this one is on the boundaries right because half the people i've read say it's made up it's part of a collection called she for he and some of it is written from the female perspective imagine you're being dumped some of it's written about imaginary women some of it and this is creepy is written about women Hardy saw on the street. And he literally kept a notebook of women I have seen today. Oh, God bless him. Like, seriously, no, no, Thomas, no. But some people think there was actually a romance that led to this. And, okay, I'm going to give this with a grain of salt because the site, half the writers I've read are like, this is it, and the other half are like, this is made up. So, not that far from where he lived was a rich, rich house in which there was a housekeeper called Eliza Nichols. At this point, Hardy and Eliza were both very religious. So they started dating, but there was no, like, 
you know, nothing physical between them. It was very much a, I like you, we're doing this properly, cool. And Eliza is fine with that. Like, this is the time before birth control. So if they'd have actually consummated their love, she may have ended up in all kinds of issues. So one day, Hardy meets up with Eliza and is like, I've been reading these books. I've been reading about Swinburne. who may have eaten a monkey and I've been reading about atheism and now I don't believe in religion anymore and I'm a stoic and nothing matters and Elizabeth is sorry Eliza Nichols is like okay and he's like but now it means it's okay if we sleep together because religion means nothing so don't you want to get with me and she's like no like he assumed when he presented her with this quote-unquote evidence that her face was wrong she would swoon into his arms and she was like no no just because you've lost your face doesn't mean i've lost mine and was like no sorry uh if you changed this much then no thank you and that is apparently the best theory for the dumping at the pond he presented her like an edgelord on the internet or even Percy Bysshe Shelley with proof that her face was wrong so she could get with him and she turned him down. Right. <sighs> like, honestly, I am very much hashtag team Eliza in this scenario. I really, really am. He gets more and more and more disillusioned with London and eventually he moves back with his parents and starts kind of following the path that they have put for him like he starts doing local architecting it's all good he never gives up this dream of making it as a writer and this is one of his like earliest poems before he's even published anything he got stuck in a box for 20 years like I said, until it's famous, and then he brings it out as a retrospective. This is not a mature writer. This is not a professional writer. This is some weird dude sitting in a flat in Ken. So, <laughs> that this is where... So that is technically the end of the story of Neutral Tones, but I really have to tell you some more about how weird he is, because I was reading this, and I was just groaning. I was like, you cannot be serious. So, in the course of um, his architecting job, he gets sent to survey a church that might need restoration. The vicar's sister-in-law is there and greets him and she is the girl of his dreams oh so lovely they have a long distance relationship in which they see each other for one week a year and solely correspond by letters after like three years in which they've seen each other for less than a month they um go they get engaged her family quite reasonably are like are you serious really are you serious and her family disown her they go to his family and this is the kicker she is much older than him well older and his family are like are you serious really and then they disown them at that point you think they would have got the message but they do get married um they have no idea what they're doing she is a rich lady who is like the kept sister-in-law of someone who's earning. And he's like, well, I guess you are now my housekeeper and you support me while I write 
in this room on my own. And their marriage became incredibly unhappy. Like, they just hated each other. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that show Arrested Development about, um, so there's two characters, Tobias and Lindsay, who are married and they decide they want an open relationship but can't actually get, ever successfully, like, get anyone to like them. And that is literally Thomas Hardy, like, he tried really hard to have an affair, but he completely failed at it. Like, he'd make friends with someone, like, just a friend. And then, like, after a couple of weeks, he'd be like, I love you, I want an affair. And the woman would be like, no. And then he'd go back in his notebook to writing about, like, women he's seen on the street. And I'm slightly paraphrasing, but there's one uh, where he saw a woman in an orange dress and was like, I would marry her if she would let me. I'm like, oh, Thomas, oh, Thomas. Like, my overwhelming reaction is I just want to make him, like, a cup of hot chocolate, maybe Horlicks, give him a sweater, tell him to sit down, relax, it's gonna be okay, stop reading stoicism, like, maybe like a funny book, maybe read something nice, no. But then this is where it gets Arthur Conan Doyle So, both Thomas Hardy and A.C. Doyle lined up their second wives while their first wives were still alive got the first wife to basically interview the second wife and check it was okay. Mrs. Number One passes away. Mrs. Number Two is in there within months. (laughs) And this is kind of the afterthought to Neutral Tones. So when Mrs. Number Two, Mrs. Hardy Number Two arrived, who was way too young for him. We are talking like 30 years younger. That's not okay. When she came into the picture, um, he was a famous writer and she wanted him to make the most of this. So she said, why don't you release this retrospective of your poetry? People might like that. But because a lot of the poems are love poems to his first wife, who I point out, um, he has not met by the time this poem is written. So it can't be her. Um, because of all these love poems to his first wife, she got her editing scissors out. And we're like, these are lovely, darling. So lovely. Let's edit the bits out where you're in love with your first wife, shall we? Because I'm Mrs. Number Two now. Get over it. So, there is a bit of a little mystery about whether Neutral Tones was different. Whether it was um, a little bit longer, a little bit name namier. We don't know. We don't know because of Mrs. Hardy Number Two getting the old editing scissors out. The other mystery before I drink my coffee and go about my day is the picture that goes with it. So when this set of poems called Wessex Poems was released, he had them illustrated like many a man would do, many a literary man. And the picture for Neutral Tones doesn't make sense. Like, it's a wall, okay? A wall going from about 10 o'clock to about 4 o'clock diagonally across. And there's a church spire in the background. And there's no pond. There's no girl. There's nothing. It's just a wall and a spire. I put it on Twitter. And honestly, if you can link it, I will give you a small prize. I don't know what it is. But if you can explain how the wall is linked to 
neutral tones, then I love you and you are very, very cool. So, since I have just announced my spontaneous <laughs> prize giveaway, and I have not quite been able to cope with how much of a sap Thomas Hardy is. I shall bid you adieu because I'm recording this in an unexpected morning off. And just to give you the illusion of how elegant a writer's life is, I am still in my jammies and I have to go to work later. So this is a good point to bid you adieu. Thank you very, very much for listening. str 8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com, YouTube, search up Straight Talking English, Patreon, slash Straight Talking English. Full context on Amazon. The Power and Conflict one is going to be done sooner than we expect. And I will speak to you very soon.